I hope you'll forgive me because this morning I decided that it's probably best that we begin our reading in 1 Samuel at verse 1 rather than verse 4. So, a reading from 1 Samuel 1. There was a certain man of Ramathaim, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his town to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival used to provoke her severely to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart so sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk at Shiloh, Hannah rose and presented herself before the Lord. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made this vow, O Lord of hosts, if only you will look on the misery of your servant and remember me, and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a male child, then I will set him before you as a Nazarite until the day of his death. He shall drink neither wine nor intoxicants, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying silently. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, how long will you make a drunken spectacle of yourself? Put away your wine. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman deeply troubled. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation all this time. Then Eli answered, Go in peace. The God of Israel grant the petition you have made. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your sight. Then the woman went to her quarters, ate and drank with her husband, and her countenance was sad no longer. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. 
Elkanah knew his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. In due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. She named him Samuel, for she said, I have asked him of the Lord. This is one of our sacred stories. Well, I am happy and honored to be with you today here at Lakeshore. Uh, I have been friends with Kendall and Ross uh, for a while now and have so looked forward to the opportunity to join your congregation in worship. I had the opportunity last year to fill in with your youth on a Wednesday night when Zach was out of town. Uh, if any of them are here, they might remember that I was a little bit mean to them. <laughs> Gave them a little bit of a tongue lashing uh, in the midst of our discussion. But I promise uh, this morning to be a little bit kinder to you than I was to your teenagers. <laughs> I should start by just telling you something about myself. Uh, kind of establish a little bit of comfort between us. I am a massive Harry Potter fan. <laughs> I am absolutely nuts for it. I have a Harry Potter three dream catcher tattooed down this arm. I named my cats Neville and Minerva after two of the bravest characters in the series. But when I was a kid, I wasn't allowed to read the books at first because I attended this super conservative school where all the other parents had convinced my mother that Halloween was evil and Harry Potter was Satan worship. And if I participated in either one, I would get left behind. <laughs> but in the winter of 2001, when I was 11, I went away for a weekend Girl Scout trip. It was me about four or five other girls my age who had all read these books and a couple of volunteer leaders. And we drove from rural Illinois to the great metropolis of Indianapolis, Indiana. <laughs> I do not remember why we went to Indianapolis. I don't remember a single detail about the event that we attended that weekend or what went on there. But we, one thing that I do remember very distinctly is that on the first night of our trip, in our hotel, there was a little gift shop with a little book section. And I went into that gift shop, and in that tiny section, I used my own money to buy the first two paperback Harry Potter books. And in this act of rebellion and independence, which should have been assigned to my mother how the rest of my teenage years would go. But in this first act of rebellion, I found the greatest literary love of my life. The world that J.K. Rowling created has always captivated me in my deepest heart. I don't think I felt so captured or enthralled by anything else in my life until I experienced a call to ministry and started studying the Old Testament. Now, as an adult, I can recognize why it is that I connected so deeply with that story. I grew up with a semi-absent father, and there was quite a bit of abuse in our home. 
I felt a deep kinship with Harry because of that. As a child, when I didn't have any way to express that pain myself, the words of Harry's story did it for me. That, and I'm a great fake nerd just like Hermione. In chapter 12 of the first book, The Philosopher's Stone, Harry wakes up on Christmas morning to find his deceased father's invisibility cloak has been gifted back to him. And so on Christmas night, in Harry's own first major act of rebellion, he goes out wandering the castle. He stumbles across the mirror of Erised, which is an enchanted mirror that, according to his professor, Dumbledore, shows the deepest, most desperate desire of our hearts. Because Harry hopes for a family, when he looks into the mirror, he sees his deceased parents and grandparents and all of his wizarding family surrounding him. And when he brings his friend Ron to look into the mirror, Ron sees himself as the most successful and celebrated of all his siblings. He sees himself more celebrated than the five brothers who have come before him. What do you hope for? If you stood in front of the mirror of Erised, what is it that the mirror would show you? What is it that you desire that sits inside of you, that is buried deep down within your soul, leaving its imprint on everything that you touch? At the beginning of 1 Samuel, we meet Hannah, and the deepest desire of Hannah's heart is for a child. If Hannah stood to look into the mirror of Erised, she would see herself holding a baby. I have to take a moment to acknowledge that I don't share Hannah's desire. In this present age and in our culture, motherhood is optional. And at this point in my life, I've chosen the no kids option. But Hannah didn't have that luxury. Hannah's whole existence as a woman in the Near Eastern world was dependent upon her being able to bear children. In most ancient Near Eastern law codes, it is legal to divorce your wife after 10 years if she does not bear you a child, or to take a second and a third wife if your first wife does not bear children after a year or two. Hannah wanted a child so badly, and her pain and her grief was increased by the fact that her husband did take on a second wife, and that second wife fulfilled her expected role by having sons and daughters. And her grief was increased even more by the insensitive words of her husband. Am I not more to you than ten sons? No. <laughs> the words he says seem like they were meant to be generous and an attempt at comforting Hannah, but really, all they manage to do is wound her more deeply because it proves that he can only see himself. He cannot relate to Hannah's pain because he has children. But friends, 
I see hope all over this passage. And not just in Hannah's hope for a child. About two weeks ago, I had to preach a sermon in one of my classes at Truett, and uh, in the weeks leading up to that, had chosen Luke 1 as the text for that sermon. The story of Zechariah and Elizabeth when they find out that they will be parents to John the baptizer. Earlier this morning, we heard the words of Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2. And many scholars will point to that song in 1 Samuel 2 and connect it to Mary's Magnificat in Luke 1. But by reading these two passages side by side over the last several weeks, I see so many connections between the life of Elizabeth and the life of Hannah. They're both married to righteous men. They both follow the customs of sacrifice and worship. And they are both barren. And friends, there is hope. When the Bible tells us that a woman is barren, especially if that woman happens to be old and barren, God is basically turning to the angels to say, hold my beer, watch what I'm going to do. When the Bible tells us someone is barren, you better start knitting some blankets because a baby is coming. I want to be sensitive to the fact that there are probably people among us today who have dealt with or are currently struggling through the experience of infertility. Please hear me say this. If that is your story, I am so sorry. You are seen and you are loved by the community that surrounds you in this place. This is the most common sign of fulfillment that God uses to prove that God keeps promises. And I think that is because this is a pain like no other. Throughout the work of the prophets, God uses the images of marriage and motherhood to describe the relationship between God and God's people. There is a sacred fidelity found in the covenant of marriage and a sacred love found in the love of a mother for her child, whether biological, adopted, or short-term foster placement, as this congregation well knows. By fulfilling the hope that Hannah held to receive a child, God shows us an example of the sacred love that she holds for each individual person. The love of our eternal mother, the love of the mother for the whole church as the bride of Christ. I must admit I would like to look into the mirror of Arised and see what it reflects back to me. Because I'm not certain what the deepest desire of my heart is right now. Maybe it will show me standing in an office surrounded by books and college students gainfully employed. I've been working hard at a journey of physical fitness over the last year, so maybe it will show me beasting through pull-ups like it's nothing. But I'm also afraid of what the mirror will show me because 
I'm not certain it would reflect a deep desire for God and for the fulfillment that only God gives in my life. Hannah took the deep desire of her heart and turned herself and her desire over to God. Hannah knew what she was hoping for, and as the servant of the eternal God, she approached the tabernacle and prayed with such fervor that the priest sitting nearby thought she was drunk. I love the word pray in Hebrew. The verb for praying is always written in a reflexive voice, which means that in verse 10, when it says that Hannah prayed to the Lord, it literally means Hannah prayed herself to God. When Hannah came to the tabernacle to pray for the Lord's favor and ask for fulfillment in her hope for a child, Hannah literally presented her whole self to God in prayer. Nothing was held back. And to be quite honest, I have struggled to pray over the last several months. Sometimes it happens. We go through seasons of life when prayer does not come easily to us. I had a couple really hard experiences right at the end of the summer. My grandmother died, and uh, due to a really painful circumstance, an important friendship in my life ended. As a result, my anxiety and my mental health haven't been the best over the last couple of months. I've struggled to continue working at my best level at school and in my jobs. So I finally came to this point a few weeks ago where I stopped trying to force my own words for prayer. I realized the words just weren't coming. I needed to pray my whole self to God, but I needed someone else to give me the words to pray. I spoke with my friend Jamie, who's one of our pastors at University Baptist Church here in Waco, where I serve, and he suggested I try reading A Diary of Private Prayer by John Bailey. I'd like to read to you the words from the third evening prayer in that book. O Lord, you are wise, most great, and most holy. In wisdom and power and tender mercy, you created me in your own image. You have given me this life, you have given me all I have, and you know where and how I live. You have surrounded me with gracious gifts and situations. You have written your law within my heart. And in my heart's most secret chamber, you are waiting to meet and speak with me, freely offering your fellowship in spite of all I have done wrong. Help me to take this open road to peace of mind. In my heart's most secret chamber, you are waiting. I have to wonder if after coming to the tabernacle with her husband for so many years, having spent so many nights struggling through the same prayers for fulfillment, whether Hannah was praying herself to God using her own words 
or if she was reciting words that she had been taught as a child or taught during worship. Perhaps she was repeating the words of Psalm 16. Protect me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Or maybe the words of Psalm 79. Help me, O God of my salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver me and forgive my sins for your name's sake. Or... Maybe she repeated those darkest words of despair that are found in Psalm 88. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a thing of horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call on you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Lord, Why do you cast me off? Why do you hide your face from me? See, I don't think the words that we pray matter quite as much as the fact that we are praying. Hannah's prayer here is for a child. But more than that, Hannah's prayer is for God to see her, to understand her misery, to fulfill her hopes and Fill her heart with something beautiful. No matter what we are hoping for, God desires that we bring our hope to God in prayer. Sometimes your fulfillment will be found in the act of prayer, because the act of prayer will draw your heart closer to God. Sometimes the act of prayer will fill you with the patience needed to wait for an answer. In Hannah's case, fulfillment did come. She received a son, she named him Samuel, and she kept her word to return him back to the lifelong service of God. And by receiving her fulfillment and immediately turning him back over to God's service, Hannah was even more blessed. Chapter 2, verse 21, tells us that Hannah received three more sons and two daughters. Hannah's hope and her devotion to the service of God fulfilled her in ways that I am sure she never expected. Hannah waited and waited and waited, and she received a gift in return. I don't want to push us ahead in the church calendar too quickly, but it's hard to think of Hannah waiting for fulfillment without also thinking of the season of Advent, in which we as a church wait in anticipation of the arrival of the infant Christ at Christmas. It's a kind of divine dress rehearsal. It's waiting in this miniaturized season of anticipation that points toward the great season of waiting for Christ's return in the world. When I read the story of Hannah and I recognize that her fulfillment was greater and more beautiful than she imagined, I wonder at the fact that God's fulfillment for us at the return of Christ will be greater and more beautiful than we can imagine. 
And when I rehearse the story of Christ's coming, I am reminded that Christ has indeed come. And Christ has fulfilled my deepest need by offering me salvation and redemption and justice in this life. When we as the church participate in the waiting, we remember what has already been fulfilled. When we participate in the waiting, we remember what has been fulfilled. So what is it that you hope for? How is it that you are posturing yourself in your season of waiting? Are you finding ways to pray your whole self to God, laying out your pain and longing and desires before God, opening up the deepest chambers of your soul for God to examine? As we look toward the rehearsal of waiting in Advent, I would like to challenge all of us, myself included, to examine the ways in which we wait. Is our anticipation holy? Is our anticipation pure? And do our hopes align with what God has for us as a part of God's kingdom on earth? When you look at the things that you desire, would receiving fulfillment of that desire teach you something about how God loves you? Brothers and sisters and non-cis siblings, my prayer for us today is that we learn to be like Hannah, allowing the deep fulfillment of our deep hopes to draw us closer to God, teaching us how wide and long and high the love of Christ is for us all, and reminding us that fulfillment beyond our wildest dreams has already come. Amen.